COP27 an important vehicle for tackling the climate crisis? It's a tremendous outcome. We've been fighting for this for three decades. Or an overblown carnival that leads to little meaningful change. It, it may not be the best, it's, it's the beginning. This year's conference in Egypt was fraught with geopolitics and tense negotiations. All ministers, as they have told me, like myself, are prepared to walk away if we do not have a result that does justice to what the world is waiting for, namely that we do something about this climate crisis. And after a torturous two weeks and near total collapse, a deal has been finally struck to help developing countries, who, through no fault of their own, are bearing the brunt of climate change. But little headway has been made in tackling the root cause of the crisis, our dependence on fossil fuels. We are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. I'm Aideen Finnegan and this is In The News from The Irish Times. Today, we speak to environment editor Kevin O'Sullivan, who's been reporting from Sharm el-Sheikh, and ask, is the COP even fit for purpose? Kevin, in a sentence or two, would you be able to explain COP and how it works? I, I know a sentence is ambitious, but we have a host nation yeah. that anchors the conference. I presume yeah. that's fraught with geopolitics. It is all the time. And um, Egypt were the hosts. And Egypt have, has a good reputation uh, in dip diplomatic circles, but ultimately it was a poor negotiator. It has to facilitate all the negotiations. It is under the COP process, which is part of the UN, the, under the UN framework for climate change. So every year it moves to a different continent uh, on rotation. And this year, unfortunately, there were particular issues because it was in Egypt. It was an African COP and it got a lot for Africa, I, I would argue, but it did, it did constrain the COP. Now, the COP is essentially a conference of the parties. And you're talking about almost 200 countries, including the EU, turning up and trying to agree on action as far as climate is concerned. So it's a very cumbersome process. And you can't regulate. You have to get consensus. So it's very difficult because, you know, some countries are very rich, some countries are big carbon polluters, some are very poor, and some are not responsible for the climate disaster that we have. So it, that's why it's such a laborious process. It's two weeks every year, and you have technical and scientific discussions in the first few days after the leaders of the world appear and promise things, and probably over-promise in a lot of instances. Also, it's, a, it's an opportunity in normal COPs for civil society to come and air, air their concerns. And they're, they're not on the sidelines. They have to be listened to at these COPs. So in other words, NGOs, environmental groups, indigenous groups, that's really important. It's a platform for them. And they can meet John Kerry in the corridor and say, look, this is what I'm worried about. He listened to them. It's remarkable that the, the informal opportunities that you have in a COP. And then you go into the negotiating rooms and that's where the hard fight takes place. And sometimes you think, oh, it's going to make a great deal. And then there's rollback text editing. And the final outcome or the communique is what's known as the cover decision. And that's fought over line by line by line. So uh, on this occasion, the outcome was two sides of a coin, one good and one bad. It was really great on loss and damage because that's tangible result. And you could declare the COP success based on that alone. But on the other side, mitigation, reducing emissions and facing up to the prime source of the climate crisis that we have, in other words, fossil fuels, it was a weak outcome. OK, so let's talk about the Loss and Damage Fund first, which is obviously designed to help poorer countries cope with the devastating effects of climate change. How exactly does it work? 
it's, it's, it's kind of a complex notion because in one sense, it's countries who are big polluters who got rich on fossil fuels paying for the sins of their past. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is that it's to pay for future damage that we know is baked into the system. We know we're going to have worse and more frequent uh, weather events related to climate in the next few decades. So it's to to help countries adapt to become more resilient, to change their energy to clean energy. And there will obviously be ongoing funding. So it's really significant. And it will see vast sums of money ultimately going to the most vulnerable countries. So they're probably the small island developing states, particularly in the Pacific, and also the least developed uh, countries in the world. So they're the poorest countries of the world. And the interesting thing about this particular deal is that unlike the UN deals of the past that took, they take a decision that might take seven years, 10 years even, to be sort of active on the ground, this has a very real chance of being in place within two years. They're going to have to work out how they do it, who benefits, who doesn't benefit. And that's very loaded politically over the next 12 months into the next COP in Abu Dhabi. But allied into that, and this hasn't got huge coverage, is very strong backing for the reform of the global financial system. In other words, how the IMF operates, how multilateral development banks operate. So the way they do it at the moment is very cumbersome and it it doesn't ensure a good flow of of cash. So reform of all of that was strongly flagged there. So when you combine that with loss and damage, that would generate trillions of dollars on an ongoing basis to countries that most deserve it. Now, there'll be a big battle over who is a donor and who is a recipient. And unfortunately, the system of how they divide countries is is very, is out of date in effect. It was based on 1992 criteria. So some countries have got wealthy in the meantime, some have got a lot of fossil fuels. So they will have to switch from being a beneficiary to a donor. And China is the chief uh, country in that regard. So how do the developing countries feel about it? Because it's it's kind of a sticking plaster. The the other side of the coin wasn't tackled. The, yeah. the root cause of... Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and we'll have more floods in Pakistan and we'll have more fo- food crises in the Horn of Africa. Yeah, th- that's, that's the ultimate weakness. You're right, because if you don't have mitigation action, effective mitigation action in reducing emissions, inevitably you're going to have more loss and damage. So the country's going to have to pay more. Uh, the wealthy countries of the global north will have to pay more to the global south. And that's that's the, the hard reality. And that's why when countries stand back and look at the outcome, they will see a terrible weakness on the mitigation fossil fuel side. You mentioned there about, you know, not enough progress being made in the fight to limit emissions and keeping warming to one and a half degrees centigrade or below. So why why does this deal not advance the critical goal of limiting emissions? Well, the main reason for that is it didn't build on Glasgow. Glasgow, The Glasgow Pact, as it was known, which was the deal, was very good, but it was imperfect. Yet it did commit all the countries to step up their ambitions, particularly in the form of what's known as nationally determined contributions. In other words, they're your national promises in effect. And unfortunately, only 24 countries since Glasgow pushed up their ambitions as requested, as they had committed to. So that was a big gap. So you would have expected that the outcome in Egypt would have issued a a clear direction of travel and build on Glasgow. And that did not happen, which is a really 
a really big negative uh, in terms of COP27. Remind us what failing to limit warming to one and a half degrees actually means in terms of impact. 1.5 is a key target of the Paris Agreement. In other words, to contain global average temperature rise this century to 1.5 degrees. And the reason for that is if we go beyond 1.5, the, the effects of the climate emergency are going to be far worse. They're going to be climate tipping points. There'll be situations where we won't know what will happen because of the world warming to that extent. So it's a very crucial target because if you can adhere to that target, you can almost stop climate effects, not all, but a lot of them. And and in effect, the world becomes a more livable place. But I urge you to acknowledge when you walk out of this room that we have all fallen short in actions to avoid and minimize loss and damage. We should have done much more. Our citizens expect us to lead. That was EU climate chief Franz Timmermans speaking at the end of COP27. That's a very negative appraisal overall by one of the lead negotiators of this summit. So what exactly was the EU looking for that they didn't get? They wanted just stronger commitments. The EU stepped up its commitments to from 55% cut in emissions by 2030 to 57. Now that sounds, sounds like a very small percentage increase, but it's hugely significant. It has immense implications for all countries, all member states, including Ireland. It's a much more demanding scenario. So like they they voted with with sort of justification and also with transparency and with credibility because they were they were increasing their ambition but unfortunately others didn't row in with that so Franz Timmermans comment is really very true and justified and he was a very interesting character to watch he was clearly one of the key negotiators but you could see his anger and his frustration and dismay at various different points during the negotiations notwithstanding the progress on loss and damage And there were others that were gravely disappointed. Even our own Minister for Climate, Eamon Ryan, clearly said that that side of the the cover decision was weak. So who were the other key players in the negotiations? Well, you always have the big economies and they're they're guilty more than anyone else for the amount of historical emissions we have. So so if there's going to be big change, they have to move. uh, And so clearly then in that scenario you're talking about in the top tier, the U.S., Europe, as in the EU, and China. So it was very interesting about China. And I think a lot of it is down to the the dynamic between John Kerry and the chief uh, China representative at the talks, Xi Jinping. And they have a very good working relationship. And notwithstanding all the tensions between China and the US in recent months, and they're they're still there, they they had some very interesting uh, meetings. Now, we we weren't part of that, but clearly they were making progress. So then out of the G20, it was announced that they would begin climate negotiations in terms of actions, in terms of cooperation. And I wouldn't say that it's back to where it was, but it's a very good sign that they will get together more. And particularly on the big issues like methane, which is the the, the worst greenhouse gas because it, it, it causes the worst degree of heating in the short term. Um, so there, there are big moves there, I would think. Um, there's an alliance on methane planning to reduce uh, methane, methane by 30% by the end of the decade. And 150 countries, including Ireland, have supported that now. China has 
is indicated it will support it hasn't formally supported that alliance but that's a really significant win out of the COP on the side issues beyond beyond the negotiating rooms there's a second tier then that you have to try and bring on board that are major economies but some of them are fossil fuel or petro states as, as, as it's known then you're talking about Saudi Arabia Russia India and Australia and to a certain extent Brazil now the Brazil situation uh, was really turned around in its head and that was probably the most uplifting part of the whole COP because President Lula has made huge commitments on the Amazon. Um, he is he is going to be president of the G20 in two years' time. He has already flagged that climate action will be the one of the top agenda items, which is that's really strong because the G20 countries are responsible for 80% of emissions globally. Then... Unfortunately, you have the typical Middle East uh, high generators of fossil fuels who are very difficult to get across the line, notably Saudi Arabia. They are inclined to drag down COPs because they 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 force changes, which which other other countries that would normally support their position always row in on. Uh, for example, like India or Russia. So um, they they are not a force for a positive outcome of, uh, in terms of the fossil fuel issue. Australia was fascinating because Australia changed its position completely. It's one of the biggest, oh. fossil, biggest fossil fuel producers in the world. Australia and, is? Yes, yes, because of coal exports in particular. And because of the new government, it now has really good climate ambitions that rank on a par with Europe, Ireland and some of the really progressive countries. And they supported the strongest measures uh, in terms of decarbonisation, in terms of ambitious targets. And that was a really uplifting part of the COP because it shows, you know, within a short period of time, countries can come on board in terms of effective climate action. Kevin, I want to ask you about the lobbyists because obviously there were over 600 representatives from the fossil fuel industry representatives is the diplomatic word. Obviously, these people are not here to do anything but lobby for their interests. So that's a big criticism of COP as well. Why are they there? Why are they allowed to be there? Well, it, it's it's an open forum in many respects. So you can apply to go there. You can apply to go as an observer, as an NGO. And there is some logic to having them there because you're talking about the future of energy. Um, but I would say their presence in such large numbers is, is insidious. And uh, it really... It took its, I think COP27 was uh, tarnished by that. Um, 636 lobbyists. Yeah, I mean, when you're talking the... about NGOs rubbing yeah. shoulders with John yeah. Kerry, yeah. the same goes oh, for the absolutely. lobbyists. Absolutely, absolutely. And there was a particularly sinister aspect of that because some of the fossil fuel, fossil fuel lobbyists became part of negotiating teams for African countries. So you can see the way they're they're eking their way into That's a countries. bit of a land grab, is it? Uh, yeah, very much so. And there's this, what's known as the dash for gas, where Europe needs huge volumes of gas and LNG. Mm. And this is a way in. But it was very clear from the EU and others, and even the US actually, that it would be a, a very bad move by African countries to scale up fossil fuels, not just because of the risk of stranded assets, but it will come as a toll and it will feed into to, to worsening climate effects. And they're already suffering hugely. Like the situation in the Horn of Africa is truly appalling. And they've, they're missing, you know, the rainy seasons have in effect disappeared. They haven't had proper 
uh, return in terms of, of rain for probably five seasons. So it's a very difficult situation that could be made worse. But unfortunately, a lot of the fossil fuel companies are you know offering these solutions that are that are not in the national interest they're not going to benefit communities they're taking the the assets away from individual countries there's not necessarily going to be a huge payback for them governments and corporations come to the cop each year delivering grand statements with lofty commitments but these commitments are only partially honored Commitments we have made and continue to make can only make a difference when we act on them. There is no doubt that we all acknowledge the signs and warnings on climate change, but implementation has thus far remained elusive and yes, a mirage. Kind of the elephant in the room is that this is a load of countries getting together, talking about targets agreeing on targets, but then they have to actually deliver on them. And it doesn't seem like we're getting that delivery. It's And, and there are questions being raised about what is the point of COP? Is it just this bloated conference where a lot of the world leaders go to do a bit of greenwashing themselves, essentially? Yeah, and that's a fair point. And, and to a certain extent, there's a lot of truth in that. But I think the COP process is the only process we have globally to agree anything on climate. And it has achieved some big results and notably the, the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement has stood the test of time. It's the guide. It, the science behind it is really strong and, and clear and the obvious thing. You cut emissions, you reduce global warming, you reduce the awful impacts of climate, you reduce extreme weather events made worse by elevated temperatures, you reduce long-term sea level rise. So that the course is clear and, and through another UN process where all the world's best climate scientists through the UN IPCC mechanism, they are delivering. They are showing what's happening to the world. This couldn't be clearer. And they're also beginning to show the solutions that, you know, how you can effectively decarbonize and the benefits you get from that. So that side of it is really good. But the, clearly the COP process is not fit for purpose, I would argue, because it's not translating decisions into quick, effective climate action, which the world urgently needs now. That said, I think the COP process is really important because you're, you have every country in the world represented there and it's an opportunity for them to, to meet with, with, for example, the people that provide the best clean energy in the world and to, to do deals, to collaborate, to have projects that are going to be of major regional significance in Africa or in Latin America. So therefore, it's a mechanism whereby you can find a way forward. So I think it's really important, especially for poorer countries that don't have technology, don't have know-how. And that transfer from the developed world is beginning to happen at pace. And that's a really positive thing. But I think it goes back to that point that you've raised that it's not not adequate for effective action. And I think that's a big issue now because the climate crisis is worsening. So how do you get COP into a better position? And some people have said that maybe you should divide it into to smaller COPs where you would do particular themes like agriculture, like energy, like nature uh, separately, and that probably you could get 
better agreement that way. That that has some merit. But I think the COP process has to be retained despite its bloatedness. But I think nothing is beyond reform. So therefore, it, it, we do have to look at how to make it how to make it more effective. Yeah, because I'm just thinking about how, you know, the, the real life experiences that leaders go over there. Like we'll say in an Irish context, Eamon Ryan and delegates go over there and they make these promises about carbon budgets and reducing emissions. And then they come home and we have you know, sectors that say, no, you know, like, I'm not I'm not singling out agriculture, but they are a big emitter of methane. And then there's rows over, we can't cut that. It would harm our economic growth. What, what's the point in us doing that when China and India are still massive, and the US massive emitters? So actually, what's agreed at COP and what you can get delivered domestically, they, they often don't marry up. Yeah, and that's unfortunate. But I would contend, if you look at countries across the planet now, they are moving, they are decarbonising, they are changing to clean energy in most instances. And that's where Ireland really has to match up because if we, as a wealthy country, one of the highest emitters per capita in the world, don't change our ways, we're going to lose credibility on the international stage. Not only that, climate impacts will worsen in Ireland. We're not going to escape. And ultimately, that's not in our interests. Unfortunately, when you get home, despite all the good commitments internationally, short-termism kicks in, political, narrow view of what's the crisis of today, what's the crisis of next week, and little beyond that. And it's also a bit of a culture war at the moment because it's seen as this liberal agenda being forced on everybody, I guess, because it's not very compatible with capitalism, which is based on consumption and growth, growth, growth. Yeah, it's clear that a a new understanding of what good growth is has to apply. And I think um, when you explore the options in climate action, mitigation, adaptation, it will bring the world to a better place. I think the cost will be high initially, the financial cost, but quickly you will get a good return. So I think the way you sell climate action is really important in the Irish context. You have to improve understanding. People are very willing, actually, I would contend, to do their bit but sometimes they don't know how. They mightn't understand the complexities of carbon trading and global emissions and and all of that, but they do want to make a meaningful contribution. And like never before, they want their politicians to act quickly. I would say the political stalling is probably the biggest issue we have in the country at the moment. And it will come at a huge cost because if we don't act effectively between now and 2030 and peak our emissions within years, there'll be terrible costs, terrible economic costs. It, it, the options are there now at considerably less cost. Kevin O'Sullivan, thank you very much for joining us. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan. In the News will be back on Friday. 